following message is from a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning. By the way, next Sunday you'll be hearing from Frank Pizor. Yeah, not Frank Messina. Yeah, yeah. Just don't want you to be shocked if you're expecting the other Frank. It's okay. Thank you for inviting me again. I think it was October when I was last here, and hopefully Steve has had a chance to correct that message if I made any errors, uh, and we'll get another chance today to see what we can do here. If you know me at all, if you know me at a personal level, most of my friends and family observe that uh, I speak a lot in analogies. I constantly compare one thing to another, and they said, why do you do that all the time? And I I realized why is because for my simple mind, it always helps me to attach a more complex truth to a simple truth I already understand. And by making those associations, the understanding runs deeper. It stays longer with me. And I realized that in this complex world, uh, really, it's actually a very simple world with layers of complexity. Things are generally not that complex. And behind every complicated story is usually a very simple, very straightforward human story. So I really appreciate metaphors, analogies, and when I see them in scripture, I get really happy. A lot of people have developed metaphors for the Christian life. Uh, Sometimes these metaphors uh, arise out of your life experience. So if you've had a life like mine, you might say something like, you know, life is a party. Christian life is just one unending celebration. Uh, If you've had a really difficult life, you might say life is nothing but a struggle or a series of disappointments. Maybe your metaphor of, of Christian life is shaped by the influence of a church. Some churches that I'm familiar with frame everything in Christian life as a fight. you got to fight. It's always a fight. It's war. It's a battle. Maybe... Your metaphor for the Christian life is an aspirational statement, like life is a quest. It's a journey or adventure of unfolding understanding and improvement. I'm excited that the Bible offers us metaphors for the Christian life. There are a number of them. And today, I want to look at a very familiar metaphor offered to us by the writer of Hebrews. It's the metaphor of life as a race. And especially, not just life in general, although you don't have to be a Christian to identify and relate uh, to this metaphor, I think it's especially true of the life of following Jesus. I want to look at Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, and here's what it reads. I'm going to read out of the ESV. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This little passage of three verses is so rich, 
I feel like one message doesn't really do justice to everything it contains. You could turn this passage into a series. But I want to journey through this quickly with you and make some observations I think may be helpful to some of you as you try to figure out what, how to make sense of life as a Christian. Because I think metaphors are important. The way you frame anything really drives how you try to do it. So for years, I thought of life, including Christian life, as a party, a, an unending celebration, and it explained very largely how I approached that, that life. I avoided anything that, that kind of dimmed my vibe, <laughs> dampened my spirits. I avoided negative people. For me, I just needed Christian life to be an unending party, and it was. Steve will attest, I turned my whole life into a nonstop party. I did it before I was a Christian, and I kept doing it after I was a Christian. The way you frame something has everything to do with the way you pursue it. And so metaphors matter because it probably captures why you approach your Christian life the way you do. And I want to walk through this passage and make a few observations with you uh, that I think may be challenging and helpful. And the first is to run the race that is set before you. You may not be able to tell by looking at me now, but when I was younger, I was very fast, very quick, just like Speedy Gonzalez. And in junior high, I ran track. I was a record setter at my junior high school. I ran the 100-yard and 200-yard. We called them dashes back then, you know, and we, it was pre-metric, so we measured everything in yards. So I did the 100-yard dash and the 200-yard dash. And my favorite moment as a track runner was that, that very tense moment, coiled-up moment, just before the starter fired his gun. I, the, the race was almost anticlimactic for me because the moment I lived for was when every runner was lined up and we're down here on our blocks and looking at each other and I'm sizing everyone up. And I'm like, I could take him. I could, that guy I'm a little worried about. I, and so you're kind of looking and you're wondering because it hasn't happened yet. You're not sure how you're going to do or if you can conquer these guys. And it's that pregnant moment of possibility and you really don't know anyone could take it. I, I love that moment so much. And actually, this time of year always feels like that for me, the start of a new year, where you're like, what's this year going to be like? And I love that as a sprinter, it didn't last very long, and I could see the finish line from the starting point. Like, I love that about sprinting was I know where I got to run to, and I just got to get there before all these other jokers. And I did very well because for me, I think that's about the horizon line of what I can endeavor to do. I, I think I have some undiagnosed ADHD, and my wife definitely supports that. And so I think sprinting was perfect for someone like me. But over the years, I've come to see that sprinting is actually a really bad metaphor for Christian life. I don't think that's the kind of race the writer of Hebrews had in mind at all. And that matters because there's lots of races, and the kind of race you envision probably fuels the way you're trying to run it. And I have to tell you, I really thought the first half of my life that I read this passage, he was referring to a sprint and that the goal was to win. I even thought that the goal was to beat other people. And I, if you're like me, how many of you are like me, you love competition? Like playing a game by yourself is boring, but the minute someone else comes, you could be flipping bottles trying to like land one, but the minute someone else goes, watch, I could do it, and then you're like, game on. Suddenly it gets more interesting 
because you got someone to measure yourself against. I think that's the way I wanted life to be, including life in Christ. I've now come to realize that actually long-distance running, what Betty does, which I still can't understand, I don't know what she's running from, but she's running every year. It's crazy to me. I've never been a long-distance runner. I've always hated it, so I can't actually identify experientially. But I think that kind of running is a much better metaphor for the writer of Hebrews is trying to describe. I want to make one, one observation from verse 1 about the nature of this race. Look at what it says. If you, you can't miss it. Look how often the first-person plural pronoun is used. It's this idea of this race is that we are surrounded. We're the ones running, so let us all lay aside. Let us run this race set before us. This is not an individualized teaching. And in, in the United States, in American evangelicalism, I would wager that the way we hear, receive, understand the majority of biblical passages, whether they say us or you all, we hear everything as directed to us as individuals. Like, this is just about me. It's not. It's very clear that this is addressing a group of people and saying the nature of this race is that the encouragement, the admonition goes out to the whole church. This is not a race where the nature of it is to be competitive and run against others. You're not running against, or the way kids today say it, you're not versing someone. They turn verses into a verb. Right? Have, your, have your kids done that? I'm going to verse you in this game. Maybe it's just my uneducated kids. But I remember hearing them say, you're versing someone. It's not that. You're not going head-to-head -head against others. This is a race in which we run it together. And if we actually learn to run it together, we might finish it well. If you run it solo or competitively, you probably won't last very long. And if you do last long, you will probably destroy and discourage a lot of other people around you along the way. So that's the first thing I want to observe about this race is that it's not a competitive race where everyone around you is the competition. It's a cooperative race in which the whole goal is to finish well together. I'm sure that as Betty runs marathons, she'll, she'll see that uh, at the upper echelons of any marathon are people from all over the world who are actually competing. But I would say 90% of those enrolled in a marathon, their whole goal is to finish at all. And if they finish, to at least beat their last time. They're not trying to beat the top five people. No one's, no one's trying to do that. There's a small handful that are there for a race, the other kind. Most of them are there for a race against themselves, against the challenge of it. I think this is the kind of race we have to accept that Christian life actually is. And there's another aspect to this race, this idea of the race set before us. But to set it up, I think a video might actually help set it up better. So watch this clip. Check it out. Hey, all right. That game happened October 25th, 1964. It was <laughs> the Vikings versus the 49ers. 
And the guy who made that mistake, I don't know if you saw it, it's a little grainy, and maybe you're not familiar with football, but the guy who did it, he was one of the greatest players to have ever played the sport at that point. Jim Marshall was an amazing defensive player. When he picked up that fumble, he didn't realize in the heat of the moment what was going on. He saw a clear open greenfield. He took it, and he ran like he stole it. And he thought he was scoring like a pick six, basically like six points for his own team. He succeeded in scoring two points for the other team, a safety. And, and I, here's the funny thing about it. He ran with all his might, but he ran in the wrong direction. And, and that really stands out for me as an interesting analogy for the way that we often get it wrong. Because I suspect in a church like this one, um, most of you don't need a pastor to tell you the virtues of working hard, being the, last, the first one in, the last one out, having diligence, vision, ingenuity. You don't need me to give you the rah-rah, like be good at what you do, live your life excellently, set high goals, become as wealthy as you can, try not to be a slouch, be professional. You don't need me to tell you all of that. I imagine most of you in this room are running very hard at something. Not all. In any church, there are some people who are just kind of like, we're supposed to run, you know, but most people I know in my church, probably at this church, they're running their butts off. They are working hard at just about everything. They're parenting hard. They're wifing and husbanding hard. They're dating hard. They're running hard. They're playing hard. Some people even play hard. They like, play furiously. The goal is not just to run intensely in the race that you picked out for yourself. To just decide, this is what matters most, and I'm going to win. Here's the funny thing about Jim Marshall. By the way, he, after that one play, this legendary NFL player, forever after that, he was referred to as Wrong Way Jim. Imagine getting a nickname from one mistake. Jim Marshall was interviewed, and I, I watched that interview, and he said, it was weird because I got to the, the end zone, and I tightened myself up because I was expecting to be mobbed by my teammates who would pile on me with congratulations, and nothing happened. And then I turned around, the stadium was silent, and then a 49 ran up to me and said, thanks, buddy. <laughs> he goes, you know something's wrong when the other team thanks you. That's when he realized he made a mistake. Was that he absolutely thought that he was going to be congratulated by the ones that he, he, he represented. And instead, he had made great wins for the other team. I worry because I think that in our churches today, that's happening everywhere. And I don't think it's safe or wise for anyone else to tell you that might be what you're doing. I don't think any of us could accept that indictment from another person. But I believe each one of us has to take real serious stock of the way we're living and what we're living for because it may be that you have stopped asking questions because whatever you chose to do, you're doing it with all your heart. You're running in such a way as to win the prize. Getting up early, staying up late, sweating it out. But what would you feel if at the end of that effort, you're just running with all your might in the wrong direction? That the very thing you gave everything to actually wasn't what your deepest heart's desire valued. 
or that instead of winning something for the family you cherish, everything you gave benefited the other side. There's a race that's marked out for all of us, and there's a race that's marked out for each of us. And the truth you have to accept is that the race marked out for each of us has to be reflective of the race marked out for all of us. Every one of us is called to live life a little differently. We're put in different circles with different passions and interests, different skill sets. Many of us do very different things for a living every day. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, for the majority of us at this, at this church, our morning, Monday morning experience is totally different than most other people's. And yet, as diverse as the individual stories are that God is writing in your lives, there has to be a common thread if we call ourselves Christ followers so that whatever race I am individually running in my context, in my way, with my contacts, it has to still be reflective of the same race set before all of us, marked out for all of us. I can't just pick a direction and then run it my way. I have to run the race in my specific way. I've seen these charity half marathons where people do it. They could clearly run the half marathon, but they're doing it for a cause, so they're dressed in all these elaborate costumes. Have you seen these? That's kind of showing off to me because I'd be just barely finishing. But they're wearing these Halloween costumes and running around. It's like that. Everyone's got the freedom to express themselves, run differently. I've heard of a guy who ran an entire marathon backwards. Right? Backwards. That's offensive to me as a non-runner. You can run your race however you were called to run it. But you still have to run the race marked out for you. I keep picking on Betty because she's the only marathon runner I'm close to. But in a marathon, even in a city familiar to you as Chicago, do you get to just pick your own route? You're like, oh, I can cut across fourth, and so I know that that's a shortcut. You don't actually get to do that in a marathon. There's a course marked out for all the runners. You don't get to just go, I know that if I cut across this block and go down that alley, I could shave off half a mile. That's clever, but it's not allowed because there is a course marked out for everyone. What is this race marked out for all of us? The one common thread for which every one of us is alive and breathing after we meet Christ. We're expressing and pursuing it in all different ways, but what is the one unifying purpose for every life here? I think the Apostle Paul sums it up beautifully in his own testimony. Paul often wrote in a voice of teaching and authority, but once in a while he wrote very vulnerably in a voice of testimony, saying, this is my story. And listen to what he writes. Okay, this is what he writes. <coughs> Excuse me. In Acts 20, 24, he writes this. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The race which Paul understood was assigned to him was that of testifying, pointing people to the good news of God's grace. That in this broken, filthy, pain-ridden world, full of disappointment, 
full of treachery and offense. There is good news to be found in this terrible world, and it is found in the good news of the grace of God that even when we have to live in this world, we'd rather change. Even if the things right around us never change, the grace of God holds us together no matter what. That even in the aftermath of your own sin and failure, dealing for years with besetting sins and character flaws which you can hardly stand, self-loathing as you look in the mirror wondering, when am I ever going to be different? That the grace of God is the only thing that represents truly good news in this messed up world. We try so hard to cheer ourselves up with, with alternative forms of good news. Hey, you got a new car, awesome. A new job, a new house, a new person, awesome. But that stuff wears away so fast. I bought a new car like maybe five months ago. It's the most I've ever spent on a car. I was real excited for the first month. I love the new car smell. I would yell at my kids if they try to bring food into the car. And then, like a fool, I bought it just before winter. And once winter in Chicago hits, your car ain't clean and fresh anymore. Now, that new car is just a car. It's an expensive just a car. And it's amazing to me how short-lived the world's version of good news is. How fascinating to replace it with more good news because I'm surrounded every day, assailed on every front by the bad news. And what Paul says is the, court, the race set out before us is that in every way, whether we're losing or winning, in victory or in defeat, in every circumstance, our lives, not just our mouths, but the way that we respond to our lives points everyone who's watching to the good news of the grace of God. That I can see that good news even when the world is filled with bad news. I don't need to turn this world into a utopia to see the goodness of God. In fact, sometimes the goodness of God, His grace shines best in the face of man's horrible failure. This is more than passing out tracts door to door. It's not evangelism simply through words. It is the pointing and the testifying to the great good news of God's grace in our lives. The way that I accept defeat and disappointment, the way that I respond to offense and betrayal. We're going through some things at our church right now where we have to rise up and form policies that help safeguard everyone, especially the vulnerable. But the one thing I'm dismayed that I'm not hearing very much of, everyone's talking about safety and protection and guidelines and policy, all necessary. But what I'm hearing very little of is how the power of the forgiveness of God is the real power to keep moving forward because we cannot guarantee safety in a world like ours. We can work very hard to promote it, but we can't guarantee it. Our lives are visual displays and pointers to the good news of the grace of God. That is the race that each one of us has set before us. The way you do it in your context, in your specific way, that's entirely between you and God. But your story has to be included in the great story of all of God's people.
run the race set before you. Don't just pick a race and run it with all your heart. Are you guys okay? I'm not yelling at you, you know. I'm trying to encourage you, okay? Let's just stay together. Second observation from this is lay aside every hindrance. You're familiar with this, right? Verse, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I remember a day in my senior year of high school when this, this guy, a friend of mine named Mac, he was really tall, really athletic, and he walked into class one day and there was a stir. And I was like, what's going on? Everyone looked over at Mac. He was completely shaved. He was on the swim team. The state meet was coming around. And when I say he had shaved, I mean, this, this brother <laughs> had shaved all his hair off. He had shaved his eyebrows off. He had shaved all the body hair off, all of it. He, he showed us later in gym class. He's like, I shave, everything's gone. I am so hydrodynamic. I'm like a porpoise. He's making these sounds. And I just remember that visual because it's so weird. I've seen bald people, but it's weird to see someone who shaved their eyebrows off. That, that, I don't know why. It's, I'm so uncomfortable seeing that. And this person had shaved everything off, and he said, this is what commitment looks like, dudes. We're going to win. And, and actually, he did very, very well. He came in fourth out of the state, but still pretty good out of a whole state. I remember thinking as a 17-year-old, I don't think I've ever cared about anything <laughs> that much. But it stayed with me, this idea that if you really want to accomplish something, you can't have it all. You can't watch every show everyone's talking about. You can't read every book everyone's mentioning. At some point, something's got to give if you are really chasing after something important. It's hard for me because I'm an Enneagram 7, so I have to have fun. I mean, it's clinically proven. Without fun, I can't function. I need it the way you need oxygen and sleep and water. I have to have fun. But it's been proven that if you don't give up something, you can't actually run well in the things said before. You can't be greedy. As an Enneagram 7, I'm greedy. I can't pass up. Someone goes, oh, this show's awesome. I'm like, done. I add it to my list. I'm going to watch it. I can't let it go. It's so hard for me. Any of you like that? Just the heart is so greedy. I got to know everything. I got to try everything. I got to, you know. And here's the thing. The picture he's showing is if you really are serious about running a race, you can't keep collecting stuff that's loaded on your back and expect to run well. It's not even about winning or competing well. You're not going to finish. Recently, I was going through my hard drive because I have a three terabyte hard drive and it's almost full. And I'm like, something's wrong here. I don't have that much critical information in my life that I have three terabytes of documents. So I started looking through, and I was shocked at how much music I've collected. I have Apple Music. I download all these playlists. And I calculated how long it would take me to listen to all my music. I might not live that long. I it might actually exceed the, the lifespan I'm looking ahead to if I had music 24-7 playing in the background and only listened once to every song. 
You can't just keep collecting stuff if you really want to finish a race well. There's no moral values attached to these weights. You know, he's not saying get rid of all the bad stuff. That kind of goes without saying. But there's a stuff that's just, you probably collected it because it was good for you. It was beneficial. It was intriguing. You know how I excuse so much of my TV watching? I need to know how to really relate to a good story because it's so important to the task of preaching. And in a, in a level, it's kind of true. But it's not that true. <laughs> we justify so much of the way that we load onto ourselves so many things in the name of good that actually hinder us from running the one thing which our earthly lives are meant to put on display. He also says that sin is like something that holds too closely to you, it entangles you. And I always remember this one scene, I was at a party and there was this girl who was wearing a really tight outfit now, I think many of the boys appreciated that really tight outfit, but I think the other girls understood this is a one uncomfortable girl, and she couldn't sit down the whole party. She was just walking around like this. Because it was so tight, it was so clean, you had no freedom of movement. That's the picture that is being described here, is you've got these things that are just holding so close to the clinging, and it restricts your freedom of movement. You want to let loose. You want to burst out. You want to really run, but you can't because the stuff is all just binding you up. In your spirit, you so badly want to be free, but there's something that is holding you back. It's encumbering you, entangling you. Have any of you ever been caught in a net? That's a weird question in the year 2023. I had the experience of being caught in a net. We were at this, this camp, and there happened to be this giant net that was put up for an obstacle course. It was laying on the ground, and some of my friends thought it would be a good idea to throw it on me. Now, listen. I'm a pretty proud man. You know how like you're always thinking in, in those action movies where guys are fighting and then they're like missing, you're like, ah oh, man, I no way I'd be ducking under a rock. I'd just be like, bam, 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 hit all three of you. I thought that if someone threw a net on me, I'd be like, whatever, ninja, I'm out. I could not believe how hard it is to get out of a net. I see why fish get caught, because it's like you're just, you're trying to get out. The more you try, the more you're getting tangled, and it's so frustrating. You, tr you want so badly to break free, but you're just clawing at it. And that's the visual imagery of this verse, is that sin, it's not just that it penalizes you. It's not that it just loads you down with guilt, but somehow it, it's like the, the same equivalent spiritually of a net entangling you. You want so badly to break free and just live your life the way you want. You go on Sunday to hear a sermon and you get inspired. You're like, that's the way I want to live. I want to run like that. And yet sin undealt with in our lives is like that net. It just restricts your freedom. You can't go anywhere with it. Sometimes our sin is not just that we haven't confessed it. We don't realize that what we thought was a character trait is actually sin that's hurting other people. Other people have given us feedback saying, you know, this is kind of, it makes you a little prickly. It makes you difficult to be around with. And you're like, why can't I cooperate with other people? Why can't I work together? Why can't I make deep friendships? And people are trying to give you the feedback. Some of it is what you think is just, oh, that's just how I am. It's actually sin. It's pride getting in the way of change. It's your stubbornness saying, no, I'm just, this is the way I am. I'm not going to be different. And everyone's saying, it's hurting all of us. And as a result, you want to be with us all, but it's entangling you. It's getting in the way of us 
running together. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is whether it is these things which we've collected for good reasons that we keep loading on our backpacks or it's the sin undealt with which just encumbers us, entangles us, if your goal is to run a race and finish well, these very things are going to get in the way of doing that. And if you intend to take the race seriously, you've got to shed it at some point. Now, this is pretty self-evident because most things like that, I think you can probably identify really quickly. And if you happen to be married, if you happen to live with your parents or your siblings, just ask them. They'll tell you what those things are right away. Do you agree? Yeah. Just ask your spouse, hey, what is it about me that gets in the way of everything? What's holding me back? What's entangling me? You don't have any shortage of feedback. You don't have an excuse for not knowing. People will tell you. Just ask. I did it recently. It's not your best day. <laughs> we just surveyed the whole church, all the partners in deep interviews, invited feedback, and I didn't like all the stuff I was hearing. It's dangerous business asking people to tell you what you look like or how they experience you. But if you're serious about unentangling yourself, Here's what I'm saying is some of the stuff that's tying you up and weighing you down, you don't know it. You won't be able to identify it on your own. The obvious stuff, yes. I'm hopelessly addicted to porn. Stop it. It's holding you back. You don't need a, like a PhD to figure that one out. But the stuff that really is holding us back over time usually exists just under the, the conscious level. It's just there. It's like right there. People are hinting at it. You're kind of suspecting it, but we can't face it. And I'm always reminded of that story when Jesus healed that man who was blind. Do you remember? We, he spit in the, the mud, and he, he put it on the guy's eyes. And he, it says, he looked up, Mark 8, and he said to the blind guy, what do you see? After the first ministration, look at what it says. I see people, they look like trees walking around. I imagine that's what Steve experienced after his recent eye troubles. It's like, I see stuff, but it's all blurry. It doesn't, you know how like you, you, you and this guy was blind for a long time, but he could say, say there were people, but I can't tell who's who. So Jesus then does a second ministration, and then what does it say? His eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What I've learned over the years is that even the most earnest desire to see what's holding me back, what's blinding me, what I can't see about myself, I don't always see it right away after one conversation or one round of feedback because I realize there's a deep resistance in me to stay blind to those things. I, I don't want to see it. And if you're really serious about running the race that points the world to the glory of God's good news and grace... At some point, you've got to deal with the stuff that's holding you back, that's causing your witness to be dimmed. If you're really serious about it, I'm preparing you right now. Often, it's a progressive revelation. It requires perseverance and an openness and a humility to keep tracking down what might be holding me back from living fully this life in Christ, which I was called to live. Let me finish this way. If you want to run this race to the end, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. This is maybe the most familiar verse, the most familiar part of this whole passage. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I said earlier that as a sprinter, I liked the fact that I could see the finish line from the beginning, that I was running towards something that was coming quickly, and I could stay focused. The truth is that if you're running long distance, that's just not the case. I was so motivated by that ribbon running across the finish line. I wanted so badly to break it first. But a long distance endurance runner needs a very different kind of motivation to keep going. When I was younger, as a pastor, as a working professional, before I was a pastor, I was in the corporate world. I ran for the prize. And I remember enjoying the corporate world because it was like a game. Maybe you're old enough to remember that series of Michael J. Fox movies where it was the same plot. He starts out in the mailroom and then becomes the CEO. And that's what my journey in corporate America felt like. I started in the dungeons. And before long, I was in the top 25 employees in a massive company. Massive. And it was just like this exhilaration of I went from nothing to quintupling my income in four years because I was running so hard. And I was running. Every decision I made, every use of time and energy was devoted to winning that game. I'd never thought myself a businessman. I was starting our church at the same time. I was very busy. I was, I was part-time church planter, and I was full-time 50 hours a week in the corporate world. And I was enjoying the immediacy of the corporate world. In ministry, you minister to someone for 15 years, and then there's breakthrough. And they're like, I'm going to change a little bit. And you're like, yes. Yes. Sort of like parenting too, right? you got to wait till like they're about 22 to go, oh, you're coming out and becoming the person that we raised you to be at 22. Praise the Lord. But in business, it's like within six weeks, if you play your cards right, you score the big project, the account, stuff happens. Your income goes up. Your title changes. Your office gets bigger. And it was an exhilarating ride. And I remember when I shifted over full-time to ministry, I applied those same principles, and I was running my butt off in those early days. I was putting in 60 hours a week at church, running for the prize, and I defined the prize as an outcome where this church is really big, really, really influential, really professional, polished. We're the best church in Chicagoland. Everyone's going to want to be here. I thought that's what victory looked like. It's what I was raised on. Every Korean church I was ever a part of, their true goal was to be the best church in whatever city they were in. Our church is the best. And I thought I could win that game. And so I ran that race. And I accomplished a lot of those goals. And with each one, I found that running for a prize isn't nearly as motivating as I thought it would be. I am now in the 40th year of that race, running with Jesus. Hard to believe. I got saved in 1984. So it's just about 40 years I've been in, at this journey. And I did the math and I realized at age 55, I might actually have another 40 years left. <laughs> so tired. <laughs> and I'm like, man, 
I don't know if I could do another 40 the way I did the first 40, but I don't think that's the calling anymore. As I've gotten older, what I'm learning is that running well and running fast, running for the prize is not the thing that will get me across the finish line. Even if I win, I don't really win. I just get more tired, maybe a little more disillusioned, a little less in awe of God and of his church. What I've come to realize is that the only enduring motivation to run this race is the person of Jesus himself. I found that the people who endure the longest at any endeavor don't do it for an outcome or a prize, but they do it for a person. Loyalty, deep love, commitment to a person is the most enduring motivation for any endeavor. And when the writer of Hebrews says that we have to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the author or founder of our faith, what he's saying is in part that you can't just have faith. Faith is not an internal quality of human beings. Faith is always a response. It has an object. You don't just have faith. You have faith in someone. It's a response to someone who engenders that kind of trust and commitment and hope. Faith is not the same as commitment or grit or willpower. It's not the kind of thing you can raise up in your life by trying real hard. We had a guy who used to go to our church. He's moved on to Arizona. But his famous saying was, I'm going to Christian harder. The way he said it, he looked like he said, I'm going to Christian harder. Like he was mocking. But I think that's the way we do. We white knuckle it. As if faith is something you can conjure by trying super hard to be a person of faith. You know what it's like? Faith is something that naturally arises when you encounter someone who inspires that faith. And if you don't encounter him, you have to conjure up the mimicry of that faith, the emotionality of that faith, the behavior of those who have that faith, but you yourself will never really know why we're giving up so much for this person, for this cause, for this thing. I think it's the reason why now that I'm older and our church is old, we're a 30-year-old church, I'm starting to see so many people who started with us starting to cool and wane and fade. In the very years when they've been at this the longest, when they should be crescendoing with all their experience and wisdom and accumulated spiritual power, instead what I see is fading, which is so perplexing because that's the only area of their life where I see that dynamic. Many of them have been married and parents for a long time. They've been professionals for a long time. And on those other areas of the life, it's up and to the right. It's only in this area that there's this plateau and a decline. And I don't understand it, but I think my theory is that if you don't have the real relationship and the real encounter with the Jesus who gives birth to real faith, you have to settle for the counterfeit of faith. You know why there's this, I think there's this fascination with zombies in media today. And it's such a good metaphor for people who are actually dead, but go through the mimicry of the movements and sounds of life. Zombies eat, they walk, they sleep, they, but they're not alive. We, we call them the walking dead. 
Real faith doesn't need to be conjured up by effort. It can be strengthened by effort. It's accompanied by effort. But real faith is a response to a real God. You see him. The soul opens. That's what unlocks the willingness to give up everything. You will never die for an idea. You will die for a God you've encountered and come to know. You will lay down everything for him. If you've got to chase anything, if you've got to focus on anything, don't run for a prize or run for an outcome. Look for a God who gives birth to faith in people. If you look at verse 3, I'll, I'll end with this. He says, consider Jesus. And what do you want to consider about him? Look at this Jesus, our Savior, who endured such hostility from sinners. And if you really consider him, that word consider in Greek is always a deep word of gazing reflectively, really staring and understanding something. Not just think about it, but think about it. Look at him. Dwell on him. Meditate on him, what he went through and how he responded to it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Because if you consider him and you face the same hostility, you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. I can only know this in theory, but runners tell me the longer you run, the greater the likelihood that you'll hit a wall You'll feel pain, deep resistance, and you'll start to question, why did I start running in the first place? Betty, is that runner's wall like a real thing? Have you ever hit it? Or are you just happy the whole time? Just 20, 26 point, no, right? There's a wall, right? Yeah, there's a wall. And then you get through it. I've learned that the longer you run, the greater the likelihood the pain and doubt about the running itself went to the picture. And it's especially bad when you have to face hostility from people. Open conflict, betrayal, meanness for which there's no explanation, exclusion, judgment. And you feel weary and faint-hearted. Those are the times in my life when I've most felt like going, why would anyone live like this? It's not worth it. I just passed through such a season. I told my church recently that it was the closest I ever came to leaving ministry altogether. And the voice of broken flesh in my heart was crying out, why would anyone do this stupid work for a living? What is the point of living like this? There's no point. It's not, it's not worth it. All this time and no reward, no credibility, no, no favor, nothing. I was so discouraged. That's what hostility does to us. That's what pain does to us. Weariness, it does that to us. And at such a moment, my elders urged me to cry out to God. I am so thankful for these elders, not because they helped me run the business of the church, but because in my moment of lowest crisis, they pointed me back to Jesus. That's why we have elders in the church. It's not because they can capably run organizations, but because they are the people who direct our eyes back where they belong. They said, look to Jesus again. Cry out. Pray. My staff said the same thing to me. 
And Jesus himself has begun the rescue work of pulling me out of that pit. I'm so grateful that the things we read about in theory and scripture really work in the flesh and blood world. How meaningful then that at the end of Paul's life, he can say this to his spiritual son, Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I've remained faithful. I think that's my great desire now, above all other things. It's not to run well, to run fast, to run better. But it is to finish. And to finish well. More than anything else, I want my last breath, my last acts, my last words to be for the one who gave me my life. That's all I hope now. I just want to finish. And I want to finish well. I can testify, even in my 50s, that so many of the brothers and sisters with whom I started this journey, out of my youth group of 26, 13 of us went into ministry. Only a handful remain. So many stop running along the way. Some break the rules. Some just get tired. I want to finish well for him. And I want to call you to do the same. Don't get the clarity at the end of your life when it's all over that you ran the wrong race. You ran it for the wrong reasons in the wrong direction. You get one shot at this earthly existence. It's a gift. Use it well. Run the race set before you.